So 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit it is if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to, you, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are a lot of verses to cover this morning, and you're maybe thinking, how in the world are we going to do this within the time that we have? And I'm going to do my best uh, to do that. Uh, before we do that, why don't we take a moment to quiet ourselves, uh, do a little bit of a check-in. We do this around here. What that means is you identify. Maybe it's the first time you've been able to, you know, sit quiet for a moment, sense how you're feeling, invite Jesus 
into your life here, into your emotions, and then we'll, we'll keep going with our morning message. So Jesus, we do thank you for who you are and for what you're going to do this morning. We trust that you're at work. We trust that you're at work in our world. We trust that you're at work in people's hearts. And God, we want to see more and more people come to know you. And so I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and as their Savior, that they would come to know you. God, may the conduct of our lives speak to the truth of who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you are new to the scriptures, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to this Christian thing, or maybe new to this, you think, okay, this is, this is a church gathered. Uh, maybe you said, I'm, I'm going to church. We often say, you know, if, you, if this is your first time coming to church, this is your last time coming to church, because we don't go to church. We are the church. The church is God's people, and so welcome church. We're really ga- glad that we can actually be gathered today, and Jan mentioned uh, welcome reunion. This is what we call our family reunion, all of us coming together and celebrating Jesus, kind of like what a family reunion is uh, in many ways, the different family groups coming together. And we study the scriptures, we study the Bible, and we try to understand more intentionally for our lives what it is that God is wanting to say to us. It's in this uh, season of this time of year, we've been studying this book that's found in the New Testament, and it's known as 1 Peter. Now, many of us are aware who have been here, 1 Peter is a letter written by a guy by the name of Peter, who is one of Jesus' disciples, to a group of churches that is known in the region of the dispersion or in the Mediterranean region. And so he's writing this letter to these churches and he's encouraging them. And throughout this letter so far, what we've seen are a couple of different things. One of the things that we've seen is that suffering in life is inevitable. The scriptures do not avoid the fact that in life, this side of Jesus's return, life is going to be filled with suffering. So suffering is inevitable. We then learned last week that we as followers of Jesus are to bring the good news of Jesus to the world. So here's what I want to suggest today of what God might do in our suffering. It is this, is that if suffering is inevitable, which we learned in week two, and if we are called to announce the good news of Jesus, which we talked more about last week, we can therefore assume that God will use our suffering as a witness to Jesus. That if suffering in life is inevitable, And if we are called by God to share his good news with other people, that he may actually use the suffering in our lives to be a witness to other people of what it looks like to follow Jesus, even though you experience suffering. And that's the real focus that Peter now shifts his attention to. In the last couple of weeks, he was focusing intentionally on what does it look like to be God's people? How do we intentionally love each other? Which, as we said last week, is exceptionally hard because love is difficult and people make mistakes. Love is really hard. And now he shifts his attention and focus and he says, how do Christians live in the world in which they find themselves? And in particular, how do they live as a people suffering and in a hostile climate. 
And so I don't know about you, but I find a lot of ways that we can potentially relate to this. And so we ask ourselves the question, how can Christians live in the world that we find ourselves? If it becomes more hostile to Christian faith, how do we continue to follow Jesus faithfully? What does that actually look like? And so the next section of Peter's letter, that is his focus, that our lives are going to be a witness to Jesus Christ. So verse 11, if you have your Bibles open... Let's start there. He writes this, Beloved. Isn't that a nice way to address a group of people? Beloved? Why are they beloved? Well, they're beloved by God. They're people loved by God. And so he says, Beloved. I urge you, urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now this is picking up on the way that he identified them in chapter 1, verse 1, when Peter is identifying these people and saying, you know what, you're not, you're in this world, but you're not really of this world. You're awaiting Jesus' return and when the world is going to be remade. Uh, if you live in this world, which many of you do, you watch the news, you live a life that has difficulty, you understand that there is something wrong with the world. And Peter, again, he says suffering is inevitable, it's difficult. And so what he says here is, I'm going to identify you as sojourners and exiles who are looking forward to a day when Jesus will return. So the earth and the planet as it is, and our find, our, us finding ourselves in it, is not as it ought to be. And so you're in a way sojourners and exiles. You're away from the perfect home in which I created for you, but was tarnished. And so he says, beloved I urge you, notice his, his language, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What does he urge us to do? He says to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now you might say, well, okay, so he's urging us to abstain from what? Passions of the flesh. What does he mean by passions of the flesh? These are the natural desires that human beings have apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. When you wake up and you're like, I just want to go back to sleep, or you wake up and you're mad at somebody, and what does he say these things are doing? They wage war against your soul. What's he speaking about when he says soul? The soul here, according to Peter, is thought of as the whole person. And what he's trying to show is that sinful desires, if they triumph, have the power to destroy human beings. And this is serious language, right? So here's the first point for us to take note of as we jump into this text today. Followers of Jesus, specific followers of Jesus here, must renounce the desires of the flesh because they wage war against life in the spirit. Followers of Jesus must renounce the desires of the flesh and fight the fight because they wage war against life in the spirit. Here's what I'm convinced. If Satan, we trust that there is Satan, enemy of God, if we, if we believe that he is, exists, what, what do you think his intention is going to do? To draw you away from intimacy and relationship with God. I think many of us don't really consider the fact or think of it as on a regular basis that there is an actual battle waging. So last night, the Toronto Raptors defeat the Milwaukee Bucks. Yes. Exciting. And if you're watching the game last night, uh, you are thinking, if you were like me, you know, midway through the third quarter, wow, they're going to lose this game. Uh, they're going to have to go back to Milwaukee, and that's going to be a really tough battle, right? That's going to be a really tough fight, and wow, they're going to lose the series here. Like, I was going to the worst-case scenario. Like, this is awful, right? When you're watching that game last night, you are recognizing that there is a battle going on between the Toronto Raptors and the Milwaukee Bucks, they identify that there is a battle, and it's like each, you know, second, they're fighting and fighting and fighting, right? It's, you're, you realize, and it's very present, that there is a battle going on. And each player recognizes it. It's like, you know, if we slouch any bit here, we're going to potentially lose. 
This is, he's not comparing it to the Toronto Raptors and Milwaukee Bucks. But the point, I hope, is illustrated for us to say that there is a battle going on inside of us. And imagine one of the teams had just shown up and like, yeah, this isn't going to be difficult. You've got Giannis Antetokounmpo driving down into the paint. Oh, let him go, you know. This is what is going on in our lives, is that Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy our intimacy that we experience with God. And he wants to prevent people from experiencing a relationship with Jesus altogether. So what is he saying? What is Peter saying? He's saying, you've got to understand that there is a battle going on. And you can't be haphazard about it. You can't be lazy. You can't be apathetic about this battle. You've got to take it seriously. Renounce. Because it's a battle for your soul. It's a battle for the human person. So renounce the desires of the flesh. He says, keep your conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, he turns his attention from, you know, there's this battle going on. He says, change your conduct among the Gentiles, the people that are around you, the culture in which you live. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may actually see your good deeds. And what they're going to do is they're going to glorify God in the day of visitation. So live a life that people take notice of your good deeds. Right? They need to see your good deeds. But then secondly, they're, because of those good deeds, they're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. What does this mean? He's saying that they might actually come to know Jesus. That the conduct of your lives, the way you live your lives, may be part of the process of somebody else coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the point. When we follow and submit to Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, we become witnesses to Jesus, and our lives will be used by God in bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, you ask the question, why do we exist as a church? We exist so that we can follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. It's not enough to follow Jesus here on a Sunday morning. We want to follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life so that the good conduct of our deeds may be seen by the culture around us and so that our conduct might be used by God so that other people may come to faith in Jesus. And this happens, and how God uses this, he does this in the mundane of our lives, you know, the daily rhythms of your life. Some, for some of us, it may be just the way that we parent, the way that we live as a neighbor on our streets. He might also use some of the miraculous events of our lives, when God heals, or when God changes you very dramatically and drastically for others to see. He does this both in the pain of your life and in the pleasures of your life, in drawing people to faith in him. He does this in your rhythms of work and in your rhythms of rest. You know, I think about that more and more in our culture that is go, 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 go. Do our lives as followers of Jesus, do they exhibit the rest that he provides? Or do they look like the world around us in this, in many ways, a rat rat race? And so what we must do is we must never underestimate nor forget the power of how the gospel affects our lives indeed. And the incredible effect that it can have on the people around us as they look at our lives and they see our conduct. And so here's a couple of questions to reflect on as we look at this. Do people take notice of your conduct, your attitude, your habits, and your patterns? Do people know that you follow Jesus? Why or why not? And how is your love for Jesus actually shaping your life? 
so that others might actually be able to take notice. So that's the theme of this starting two verses, that when we follow and submit to Jesus in the everyday, we become witnesses to Jesus and our lives will be used by God in bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the focus. As Jesus said, as he was leaving earth, he says, go and make disciples. Talk about me. Live in a way that honors me so that others will take notice and come to faith. Now, Peter is not just going to stop there. He now is going to go through and give us five ways, five examples of ways that Christians in this particular culture can be a witness to Jesus. Five particular ways that a Christian in this culture can be a witness to Jesus. And if they are faithful in their witness to Jesus in these five ways, here's what he believes. People will take notice and they'll come to faith in Jesus. Right? Because then we ask the question, well, how am I going to do that? What are some ways the culture will take notice of our lives as believers here in Guelph? If we're praying in Guelph as it is in heaven, what are some of the ways that we can live and follow Jesus here so that non-believers will take notice and come to faith in Jesus? And here is five ways. Number one, submission to authority. <laughs> submission to authority. Verses 2, 13 to 17. Here's what he writes. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, we immediately apply this to our own context of the current governments. But let's take a moment to review who Peter is writing to. Roman power, Emperor Nero, who is about to lead an intense attack upon Christians, killing them for their faith in Jesus. And what does Peter write? Submit to governing authorities. Well, we ask the question, why? It seems rather silly. Ludicrous. Why would you do that? His answer, verse 13, do it for the Lord's sake. Trust God. This isn't about you. It's about God. Submit. Why? For the Lord's sake, he starts with. It's not about you. It's about God. Secondly, your submission to human authority by doing good is actually a way of practicing your submission to God. He's saying at the top of the hierarchical chain here is God. Beneath him is a form of government. When you submit to this government, you submit ultimately to God. Now, here's what he means as well. Because God is the ultimate authority, if the government calls into question your allegiance to God and submission to him, you disobey government because your ultimate authority is God. But he says if they're not intentionally acting against, then you submit to God. Here's what he's trying to prevent. Anarchy. He's trying to prevent anarchy. Saying we're not the ones that are going to trash the streets. We're not going to be the ones that are going to destroy things. No, people will take notice of our good deeds in the midst of persecution and hostility. 
because our submission is ultimately to God. And in doing so to God, we submit to governing authority. And why? Because thirdly, you are free people and your servants of God, verse 16. You are free because of Christ's blood. Do not use your freedom to indulge in evil because your freedom is restricted as servants and slaves of Christ. And he says, live under God's lordship, obeying the government as God's servants. And therefore, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Ultimately, what he's saying here is treat every person with dignity and respect. Treat every person with dignity and respect, even those you disagree with. Prioritize love for fellow believers. As we talked about over the last couple of weeks, your ultimate loyalty belongs to God and to continue to honor and respect the emperor. Wow. Imagine receiving this. We're now receiving it all these years later, but imagine receiving this. Like, are you kidding, Peter? But remember, what's the goal of their submission? So that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on. A second example. Slaves, submission to masters. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin when he suffered. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Now, right off the bat, you know, you maybe don't like this. There's a number of reasons why you might not like this, given the culture in which we live. But here's the thing. You might be saying, see, this is the Bible condoning slavery. The scriptures never commend slavery. Never recommends it. If anything, what we see is Peter and other biblical writers, if anything, talk about the equality of every human being. But here's what Peter understood in the culture he was writing to. It would have been no help to them in their witness to Jesus in which slavery was a part of their culture to try to abolish it in his letter. Instead, what he does and what other biblical writers do is they try to regulate it. To regulate it. That if this is a system that is existing... How do I regulate it rather than have it abolished? Now you might say, well, that's, that's pretty tough. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would we love to see slavery abolished in our day? Absolutely. The scriptures are emphatic about that. But here's what he was saying here. Slaves. Do not rebel against your master. It's going to make things worse for you. May your master be one for Christ through the way in which you submit to him or her. May your conduct be so gracious that they treat you favorably. Fascinating. 
So what is Peter instructing these slaves to do? He's saying, submit to your masters, even if they are wicked, because in doing so, you are ultimately, once again, submitting to God. Why? Firstly, he says, you'll receive a reward, verses 18 to 20. When you, good do, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. And this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Your submission is commendable. And there is an eschatological reward of salvation in view here for those who, in the face of suffering, do good. So the question he asks is, what is the ultimate good? And for Peter, it's that other people might have saved souls. That they'd become slaves of God rather than slaves to the earth. And then secondly, he's saying, why? You'll receive a reward, but secondly, is that you are called to imitate Jesus Christ. Thomas Schreiner writes this, suffering is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance to which they were called. It is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. And this is what Christ shows us. Christ suffered unjustly, is what he says in verse 22 to 23. And Christ also suffered for you. Christ's suffering is unique because he bore the consequence of your sin. His death was substitutionary. He suffered to free people to live righteously. And we are forgiven by Christ's atoning death at conversion. And we should therefore set an example to others of what that looks like. So, authority, governing authority, slaves to masters, Peter's not done. See what he says next. Wives' submission to husbands. Wow. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, as we've seen, Peter has been focusing on the household code. How do we continue to live in the household code? And in particular, he's been focusing on those with less power. And in here, he turns its attention to wives. And the question is, well, what kind of wives is he speaking to? And the answer to that question in this context, although it certainly could be applied to any wife, is he specifically talking to wives who have unbelieving husbands or husbands who are not followers of Jesus. And so what is he telling them? You might be a woman here, and you have an unbelieving husband. Someone does, does not know and follow Jesus. What is the word of Peter to you today? One, do not underestimate the witness of your actions and attitude. Do not underestimate the witness of your actions and attitude. Your actions and attitude, according to Peter, may actually lead to your husband's salvation. Your submission to your husband mirrors the church's submission to Christ. 
This is in no way about condoning misogyny as the New Testament was countercultural in promoting the equality of women. This is about a wife's actions in attracting a husband to faith in Christ as they submit to Jesus Christ themselves. So firstly, do not underestimate the witness of your actions and attitude. But secondly, he says, focus more on building your character than on your appearance. Peter's teaching here was actually quite typical of moralists in the Greco-Roman world. And he's saying, don't waste your money on external appearances. Because ultimately, too, God desires a gentle and quiet spirit. And so your character is what ultimately matters. And so a challenge, naturally, to the women in the room, do you spend as much time and money on your character as you do on your external appearance? Do we care about the character of ourself and our development or solely on external appearances? And then finally, Peter says, be encouraged by the faithful example of women from the past. Be encouraged. These are examples of submission. And we're not because of husband's spiritual or intellectual superiority, because instead of a woman's confidence that God would reward those who put their faith in him. And once again, what's the goal? What's the emphasis? So that people might come to faith in Jesus. It's not about you. It's so others will come to faith in Jesus. Now, Peter does not leave men off the hook. And all the women are like, yeah. Here's what he writes. What are husbands to do? Husbands are to honor and to seek to understand their wives. Wouldn't that be good? Wives, can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Honor and seek to understand your wives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, right away, everyone's like, what's the weaker vessel comment all about? You ready to find out? For Peter, this is yet another countercultural way in which God's people can be a witness to Christ in their submission to God. And he's telling the men, seek to honor and understand your wives. And what is he saying is, do not use your physical strength or domineering size to give you an out or an advantage. Honor her by seeking to understand her. He's saying your wives are co-equals as they will receive the same external reward and share the same destination, heavenly glory. And then he provides this pretty significant warning To men, if you ignore this command, your prayers will be hindered. I mean, that's not soft language. So when he talks about a weaker vessel, he's talking about a male's domineering size. Like, I am bigger than my wife. In a battle. We're not going to go there, but in a battle. She's a great wrestler. But, because she gets me in a chokehold. But, I am naturally stronger than her. I should never use my size to intimidate her or to make her feel less loved, respected, and cared for. Never! Men, never! Your wife should never, ever feel afraid of your size. They should be honored 
respected and pursued. And if you do not do this, what happens? Your prayers will be hindered. You know, we love it. Like, God hears every prayer. No! If men are using their domineering size and strength against their wives, what does he say? God's not going to hear every one of your prayers. He's not going to listen to you. Your prayers will be hindered. So, wives, men are not off the hook. Peter concludes as we transition, not with a general word about how believers in here, how believers ought to conduct their lives. And so he talks to submitting to authorities, submitting to masters, wives to husbands, husbands and seeking to honor, honor and understand their wives. And then finally, submission in your everyday stuff of life and the way that you live. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brother love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Once again, think about the context. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who, who do evil. Peter's saying is have appropriate relationships in community. He starts there. This is specific to inside the church. And then he switches his attention and he says to those who are outside the church, bless those who revile you. Don't defend yourself in that way. Bless those who revile you. Bless those who revile you. Why? I don't want to do that. Here's what he says, because you're going to receive an eternal reward. So don't speak evil. Live in peace with everyone, and remember that the Lord favors the righteous. So bless those who revile you. So, like, that's a, that's a pretty significant challenge to all of us this week, right? Bless those who revile you. We don't like you. Don't defend yourself. Don't worry about that. Leave the defense up to God. Bless those who come against you. Love them. Care for them. Why? Remember what we talked about at the beginning? so that people might come to faith in Jesus Christ. When we follow and submit to Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, we become witnesses to Jesus, and our lives will be used by God to bring people to faith in Christ. Um, Jeff Vanderstelt said this, All submission to God and his ways leads to authority from God to display his ways. All submission to God in his ways and the way that we saw in this text today leads to authority from God to then go and to display his ways to the watching world. Why? So that people come to faith in Christ. Now you might ask the question, well, how do I do this? And in particular, how do I stay motivated to submit to these different groups of people? Because it's extremely difficult. And what Peter has said in the middle of this text and what he wants to continue to emphasize for us, he says, look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Notice what he wrote. Let's go back to verse 21 to 25. For to this you have been called, if you are a follower of Jesus, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, right living with God. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus does not say, look at me, strive to be exactly like me. No, he says this, I have done perfectly what you could not do for yourself. And therefore, I am your substitute. Now follow my example. So submission to human authority. Our submission to human authority is a witness to Jesus who submit himself to the Father by submitting to governing authorities and was crucified, accomplishing our freedom. Jesus asks us to do nothing that he has not already done. Slave submission to masters, our submission to unjust masters is a witness to Jesus' submission as an innocent man dying a sinner's death on the cross, accomplishing our redemption. Wives, submission to husbands. The submission of wives to their husbands is a witness to Jesus' submission to the Father. Remember Jesus in the garden? Take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. That's submission. Or husbands honoring and seeking to understand their wives. When husbands honor and seek to understand their wives, they witness to the love of Christ for his bride, the church. Or submission in the everyday stuff of life. How we live in and outside the church is a witness to Jesus and what he has ultimately accomplished for us. Jesus does not say, look at me, strive to be exactly like me. No, he says, I have done perfectly what you could not do for yourself, and therefore I am your substitute. Now follow my example. Because when we follow and submit to Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, we become witnesses to Jesus, and our lives will be used by God to bring people to faith in Christ. Do you want to see people come to faith in Christ? Do you believe that God wants to save people? He saved you. He saved me. May he use the conduct of our lives to be a witness and testimony. And may we live lives that point to Jesus. Not point to our perfect obedience, but point to Jesus and his perfect obedience and submission on our behalf. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, there is a lot here And given the culture in which we live, the time in which we live, the sense that we get that we do not want to submit to authority, God, we are and wanting to be our own arbiters of authority. The win in our culture is freedom of the authentic self. And so here we come to you as followers of Jesus, trying to trust your word that you've written to us for our good and for your glory and say, Jesus, help us to trust you, to submit to you, even when it makes absolutely no sense. May we trust the authority that you have put into place in our lives, whether that's the government or in our local churches or in our workplaces. For those of us that 
don't have very much independence because we're serving some form of a master. Might our conduct be used to win our masters to Christ? For those of us in this room that are wives that are struggling daily because their husbands do not know and follow you, might their example and their conduct be part of the process of this man coming to faith in you. And God, for for the husbands, for the men in the room, that in any way, even subtly, use their size to be a presence that dominates women. May you crush that. May you crush us. May you break our hearts for the things that break yours. And may men seek to honor and understand their wives, celebrating her, rejoicing over her, being willing to die for her as you, Jesus, died for your bride, the church. And we do pray that now we would live lives of example and witness to the watching world and that our lives would be lived in such a way that others take notice And don't ultimately look to us, but in our submission to you, they ultimately see you through us. God, I want to see hundreds of people come to know you. I want to see this city honor you. I want to see my neighbors come to faith in you. I want to see my friends that don't know and love you come to have a personal saving relationship with you. So God, by the power of your spirit, might you... Empower me and fill my life with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that I might be able to live in submission to these things and in these ways so that others might see the conduct of my life and come to faith. And I pray the same over every single person here. And I pray that if there isn't someone in this room that does not know you, that they would come to know you today, to come to live under your submission, to live under your authority, to trust you as king. die to themselves and to trust you because of what you've done and what you've accomplished. I thank you for the testimony of the martyrs, the millions of believers that have lost their lives in submission to governments, in submission to masters. May their lives be a testimony to your greatness and to your glory. And there are people who have come to faith because of their witness. May we trust the same of our lives as well. And we pray for the persecuted church now, brothers and sisters all across the world that are living under intense persecution and suffering for their faith. Encourage their witness, empower them by your spirit. And may the conduct of their lives be used to bring leaders, authorities under your submission and ultimately freedom of the individual from an eternity apart from you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.